production. I want to give a trigger warning on this episode as it deals with graphic content, but please know that it's one of the most heartfelt, beautiful conversations I have ever had. Pick out 911. What's the location of the emergency? Sandy Hook School. I think there's somebody shooting in here. Sandy Hook School. Okay, what makes you think that? Because somebody's got a gun. I saw a glimpse of somebody. They're running down the hallway. Okay. They're still running. They're still shooting. On December 14th, 2012, a 20-year-old man walked into Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut, and shot 26 people, including 20 children aged between 5 and 6 in first grade, after also killing his own mother in their home. The American president at the time, Barack Obama, said that going to the memorial of those that were killed was the worst day of his tenure as president. This evening, Michelle and I will do what I know every parent in America will do, which is hug our children a little tighter and we'll tell them that we love them. But there are families in Connecticut who cannot do that tonight. My conversation today is with Scarlett Lewis, whose son Jesse was murdered in his classroom. However, this discussion isn't a story about a massacre. It's a story about love and survival. Scarlett is courageous, wise, and has established the Jesse Lewis Choose Love Foundation, whose mission is to create safer, and more loving communities. In this heartfelt conversation, we discuss the signs that Scarlett saw from Jesse after his death, the false conspiracy theories that surround the Sandy Hook massacre, and how Scarlett chose compassion and forgiveness for the man that murdered her son. We are literally here to help one another. When we do that, we help and heal ourselves. That's how society survives, through compassion. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Through my years of studying and researching the connection between human behaviour, personal growth and transformation, I have discovered the keys to unlocking greatness within others. In this podcast, I share stories and experiences from my own teachings, along with conversations with inspiring guests to help you learn the simple tips, habits, practices and strategies to cultivate an extraordinary existence. Scarlett Lewis is the author of the book Nurturing Healing Love, A Mother's Journey of Hope and Forgiveness. As soon as I heard Scarlett's story and the work she did, I knew she was someone I wanted to interview on A Life of Greatness. This episode does not disappoint. It highlights how to find courage when you think you have none and how to choose love instead of anger, fear or hatred. My hope is that our conversation highlights the true power of love, the essential element necessary to move forward in life and how we can live in anger and resentment or we can choose love and forgiveness every time. Scarlett Lewis, thank you for joining me. I'd love to start at the beginning and know a bit about the younger years that you had with your two gorgeous kids, Jesse and JT, and, and, and how you brought them up. Well, I brought both of them up as a single mom on a small farm in Sandy Hook, Connecticut. We had multiple horses, lots of people coming in and out and riding and dogs and 
goats and sheep and chickens, a really active environment and fun and close and loving. What were some of the fun times that you had with them? (laughs) Uh, We were constantly in motion. If there wasn't something planned, then I would go on Google and look up fun things to do in Connecticut. And so Saturday morning, we were in the car and we were gone. We went to the beach. We went on a boat ride. I had a kind of this philosophy that if the kids came home at night and they were dirty and they had dirt under their fingernails, that they were out and about and had a really good day, had a lot of fun. And tell me, what's Connecticut like? Is it a community feel there? Is it big? What is it like there? It's a really nice area. If you think about Connecticut, it's one of the oldest states in America. So there's lots of evidence of that. I live in a 1740 farmhouse, which is actually older than the United States of America. It has handmade stone walls all around it. There are lots of antique barns. And it's a really beautiful area. Obviously, as you mentioned, you're a single mom. And would you drop your two kids off to school every day? And then what job would you go and do? I had a few jobs. I cleaned credit for people on their credit reports. I worked at an investment banking firm. And I also, when Jesse died, I was an executive assistant to a CEO. So, you know, as a single mom, I just kind of did what I needed to do to pay the bills. Yes, yes. I want to talk about December 14th, 2012, where your life changed forever. 20 Mm -hmm. children, 12 girls and eight boys, all six and seven and six adult educators were gunned down in their school at Sandy Hook Elementary. And the massacre took approximately 11 minutes and it was was done by a a 20-year-old boy called Adam. I mean, that just shook the world in such a horrific, horrific way. And I can Mm -hmm. only imagine you as a mother of, of, of one of the children that died. I want to know... Like, how did you even find out that day? What happened? That day started out like any other day. And I went to work. Um, Actually, earlier, before I went to work, Jesse's dad picked him up. And I walked him out to meet him at the end of the driveway. And I turned around to give him a hug. And I noticed that he had written with his little fingernail in the frost on the side of my car. Remember, it was December 14th. It was cold. It's snowing out here now. Um, I love you. And he had drawn hearts on all my windows. And so realizing that was one of life's precious moments, I asked him to stay for a moment while I ran into the house, got my phone, which is now our camera, came out, positioned him by that sweet message. I took a close-up of where he had written, I love you, and then gave him a kiss, gave him a big hug, and sent him on the way to school. And then I went off to work. I had about a 45-minute commute. And I got to work, got my coffee, came and sat down. And about that time, 
I started having people come up to my desk saying that they had heard that there'd been a shooting. First, it was just in Sandy Hook. Then it was in a school. And then it was in Sandy Hook Elementary School as news and information started coming in. So I left and did my reverse commute back and got there. It's it's interesting that there was information that came on my drive home that a teacher had gotten shot in the foot. And that turned out to be correct, but there was no other information. So in my mind, I was thinking, oh, this is a domestic dispute. And somebody came in to, to shoot their significant other or lover or whatever. Uh, it doesn't have anything to do with the kids. But when I got to, when I got maybe a mile away from the school or a half a mile away, I realized that it was a much bigger deal than I thought. I mean, there were cars lining the sides of the road. There were people running everywhere. There were first responders from all over the state. Remember, it took me about 45 minutes to get to the school. A lot of parents that were crying and holding their kids and you know, rush, rushing off to their cars. And I got there and just tried to find someone that looked official and asked them if they had seen Jesse. And I mean, it was chaos. And he said, yeah, I think that Jesse ran next door. This was the firehouse. This was in our active shooter plan, by the way, that the school had just practiced three weeks earlier. And the plan was that the kids would, if they were evacuated, would go to the firehouse. And this firehouse is at the end of the cul-de-sac where the school is located. So he said, I think... Jesse and his classmates ran to the house on the left side of the firehouse. So I walked up to this little cute little yellow house and I knocked on the door and a man answered and I said, is Jesse Lewis here? And he said, I think he was here, but he ran over to the other side of the firehouse, which is actually one of the places where Jesse went to daycare. At that point, rather than running all around, I texted Jesse's dad, who was also coming in from work and said, uh, why don't you check the daycare? I'm going to try to go to the school. And the first responders would not allow us to go into the school. And so, you know, I was just trying to question people and figure out what was going on. I was supposed to go into a back room and write Jesse's name down on a list of missing people. And in my mind, I was thinking, I'm not I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to get him like yeah. these other parents are getting their kids. I'm just going to find him and bring him home. I don't, I'm not going to put him on a list of missing people. But of course, I ended up doing that. And I remember going into that back room and taking this piece of paper that was just a piece of paper that had been ripped out of a spiral notebook. And the list was so long of missing people. I had to turn it over on the back and write Jesse's name. But I, Never in a million years did I think that all of these people were dead. I just, you know, I had kind of like a one-track mind. Your body really does a beautiful thing during these times. It puts you into shock. Mm. And so I think that I was already there. And even though, you know, looking back now, I see that there were there were educators that had evacuated that were at, milling around the firehouse and I was asking them questions and they weren't answering them. And 
put it this way. I don't know the exact time that I got to the firehouse, but we were not notified. I wasn't notified personally that Jesse was dead until about four o'clock that afternoon. So I spent the whole day milling around, trying to figure out what was going on. We were told, oh, the kids are hiding. It's going to take us a while to find them. And I, and to me, that made sense. I thought, well, yeah, Jesse is, is uh, such a leader. He's so brave. He probably took a small contingent of kids out into the woods that surrounded the school. It's going to take them a while. And it's everything, but your brain just doesn't want to go there. And so I wasn't told until later that afternoon that he was actually one of the ones that died. Who told you that he died? You know, it's interesting. This gives you an idea of the chaos. Mm. There was a man that approached us and I got down on a knee. I was sitting in a chair and JT was sitting right next to me. My mom was there and uh, other members of my family. And he said, there's no easy way to say this. Jesse's dead. And then he got up and started walking away. And the police came over and said, what did that man say to you? And I said, he just told me that Jesse had died. And they said, he's not supposed to tell you that now. And so they apprehended him. But I mean, it just kind of shows you the amount of chaos. And at that point, I wasn't in that back room with the other families. I had wanted peace. I had wanted a, a more calm environment than one where there were, you know, parents demanding and angrily mm. uh, and, and for good reason to know what had happened to their kids. We were outside. I kept my family outside. Um, and then the first responders kept us just inside because there was media in front of the firehouse so where we wouldn't be seen. Um, it was so chaotic. And then when I heard that, this is kind of interesting. They ended up getting a, a white unmarked van and pulling it around. And we all got in the van so that we could drive through the media and get to our cars and be taken home. I remember my mom came with me to my car and was going to drive it to her house. She lives across town. And I remember looking in the back window and there's a, a car seat in the car. Remember, Jesse was six years old. He still rode in a car seat. And I remember seeing that and thinking, I don't need that anymore. You know, just, uh, and then getting into the passenger seat and we drove away, but I didn't know the extent of what happened. It was almost like my, my brain was trying to protect me. I, I wasn't aware that there were even any other fatalities. I just went home with my loss and was processing it that evening. And then the next morning, it was Jesse's dad that texted me a cover of a newspaper that said in the headline, the extent, and I just dropped the phone and sobbed. I, I had no idea that the tragedy was, was that massive. When did you see his body? When did they allow you to come and say goodbye? The first time I saw Jesse's body was at his wake. And that was almost a week after the tragedy. Really? And we were, we were, I, I, it's, I hesitate to say one of the lucky ones, if you can call this lucky, but Jesse's fatal wound was one shot to his forehead. Many of the other kids were riddled with bullets. 
And so they couldn't have an open casket. We were able to have an open casket because his wound was kind of up here by his hairline. I was so afraid to see his body, but I did want to have an open casket. That's part of the mourning process and saying goodbye. I remember one of my dad's best friends who is a three-star Marine Lieutenant General. I remember asking him if he would walk me up to the casket to see the body. I was terrified. And he did. And we knelt there in front of the casket. And I remember both of us were looking, you know, up and down him. And he made a comment. He said, I have seen these wounds before on the battlefield. Hmm. There were some shrapnel wounds, but it was just so overwhelming for me to be in that situation. I just wanted to take all of him in. You know, I had him in front of me for the last time. So I was just ravenously looking at his proportions. And I remember running my hands down his body and putting my hand underneath his legs, wanting to hold him in the casket like that. And I picked up his hand and and it was so cold and I held it for hours until it became warm. It was gut-wrenching. But the reason that I talk about it and with this level of detail is not to make people feel uncomfortable, just to give a little glimpse into the reality of what is happening. And it's not like this is a one-off. It's not. It's happened 350 times since Sandy Hook in America. So This is the reality of it. I don't know if I was a parent yet, but I remember going through the checkout line in the grocery store after work and seeing People magazine with the Columbine people on it. Columbine had happened, I think it was 20 years before Sandy Hook. And I, I remember looking at that, feeling such sadness, but also relief because... That's never going to happen to me. That happens to the people that are on the cover of People magazine, but it doesn't happen to people like me. It doesn't happen in this area. It would never happen in Sandy Hook. I think at this point, we have to come to the realization that we cannot divorce ourselves from what's happening to each other. And even if you don't know anybody who has been impacted by violence, You might know someone who is impacted by substance abuse. Mm -hmm. You might know someone who is mentally ill Uh, and and this or, or has an anger issue. What I ended up doing was honoring Jesse's legacy by addressing the root cause of all of that. And providing skills and tools for kids so that they can manage their pain and it doesn't escalate into the dysfunction that I just talked about where they harm themselves and other people. I mean, there's just so much to unpack here. But firstly, the fact that Jesse passed away and so you're grieving the loss of your son and losing him in such a horrific way. But I know that there were signs that you saw afterwards and some really beautiful spiritual things that I'd like you to take us through. 
Absolutely. Yes. Um, such healing things. And uh, one of them is on my background. I came back to my little farmhouse that I shared with my boys and Jesse had written a message on our kitchen chalkboard sometime shortly before he died. He'd written three words, nurturing, healing, love. Now on our chalkboard, they were phonetically spelled because he was in first grade and just learning to write. But I was overcome with the power of those words. First of all, there was a spiritual thing going on here, obviously, because a six-year-old doesn't say those words. No, I've got a eight-year-old and a 10-year-old and my eight-year-old doesn't, she just turned eight. She doesn't talk like that. So that's so powerful. It changed my life. I, I knew that that was, well, my life had just been changed, but I knew that that was a message of comfort for his family and friends. And it absolutely was. Like There was a spiritual awareness on his part that he wasn't going to be around for very much longer. And uh, and then it turns out, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. When I looked back, there was also a spiritual awareness that I had from the day that Jesse was born. But I also knew that that was the solution, that he had left it there for me, that if the shooter who was actually had attended Sandy Hook Elementary School in those very classrooms, if he had been able to give and receive nurturing, healing love, the tragedy would never have happened. And so I decided to dedicate myself to spreading this message throughout the world, which I've been doing every single day for the last 10 years since the tragedy. And I still believe just as strongly, if not more strongly in in now, 10 years later, that nurturing healing love is the only answer Mm. to the issues that we have. Love is connection. And there's so, so much research to show that disconnection causes so much of the suffering that leads to these escalating issues that are impacting negatively people all over the world. I remember reading that there were some other signs that you saw quite soon after Jesse's death that made you know that he was here. Yes. So you have to remember that this happened December 14th. And so Christmas was two weeks later. And I have three little brothers. They all came in and spent weeks with me at my mom's house, but that included Christmas and they all have little boys. And these little boys were running around the house, you know, uh, not fully understanding at all what had happened. And it was, it was torture for me. It was really hard. And of course it was hard for JT who was 12 years old at the time. And so I decided that we would get away together because it it was just JT and I for the first six years. And then Jesse was with us for the next six years. And all of a sudden it was just JT and I again. So I said, JT, let's, let's take a trip to Disney World and let's go there and just kind of get away from everything and heal a little bit. And so it's really an incredible story. So it's only weeks later, we had the funeral. But other than that, I was kind of keeping to myself and staying at my mom's house. And I remember getting up the morning of the flight and there was this huge snowstorm and we were supposed to leave from one airport, but the flight got canceled. So we turned around and we 
We went to another airport. That flight was canceled three times until we finally got on the flight. So we get on the plane and everyone's, you know, watching a movie or listening to the radio with their earphones on and mine's not working. I would try to watch a movie and it would switch to songs. Just like I wasn't even touching it. And the songs would be like, missing you, love you. I'm still here. I'm all around you. Things like that. And I, I couldn't, I mean, I was looking at JT and JT was looking at me like he's trying to help me get the movie working and everything. And he's seeing that it's just, it's going all crazy. And he's going, Jesse? And I was like, I think so. So I had texted a friend and I said, I think Jesse was sending me messages on the plane. These songs, these words are incredible. And I feel like they're just for me. And she said, sometimes spirits linger because they want to make sure you're going to be okay. Mm. So this was our healing trip. I didn't want to make JT sad. So we got off the plane and we got our luggage. And I said, you know what, JT, I, I have to go to the bathroom. And I knew what I was going to do. I said, can you just wait here with the luggage and I'll be right back. So I went into the bathroom and I went into a stall and I said a prayer. I was bawling hysterically. I, I, I said, Jesse, if you are lingering to see if JT and I are going to be okay, we're going to be fine. I want you to go be in the arms of Jesus. That's my personal belief. And so I didn't say that, but I'm telling you, yes. if I have to choose you lingering here or being in the arms of Jesus, I want you to be in the arms of Jesus. We will, we will be there. But I literally thought I was sending him his spirit away. I was just bawling. And I'm like, we will be fine. We will see you soon, but don't linger here because we will be okay. So I get out of the stall. I, I wipe my face off and dry up and everything. And I walk out and I go, okay, JT, let's get our rental car and we're going to have a lot of fun. So we load our luggage up and we're driving out of the driveway. This is at the Orlando airport. And we make a right onto the highway there. And we're driving not even very far when all of a sudden I looked out my left hand side and I see in the sky, there is a sky writing that says, Jesse and Jesus, Jesse ampersand, the little and Jesus together forever. Oh my God. And, and Jesse was written with a backwards J. Like, like Jesse wrote it. He's in first grade. That's yeah. how he made his J's. And I pull over, I don't say a word, and I look at JT, and JT's looking out my window, and he says, Jesse's with Jesus. But JT doesn't know about my prayer that I yeah. had just prayed. I didn't say anything to him. And so I took out my phone, and I was taking pictures of this, <laughs> just breathless, and knowing it was a direct, yes. instantaneous answer to my prayer that the answer was, I am here. While we are in the car, pulled over, the plane, which I assumed had written that message, starts writing another message right in front of us, going in front of our windshield in the sky. And I go, this is obviously a message for us. I'm saying to JT and he's he's going, yes, it is. And as we're sitting there, this plane writes, you, it's like a different wind 
sheer there because as soon as the plane writes it, it goes. Yeah. Because I have my camera, but I couldn't get a picture of that. I had gotten a picture of this. It's in my book, Jesse and Jesus. But anyway, so it writes, you, you goes away. Plus, and we sat there the whole time watching this, goes away. God goes away equals smiley face. And so I just turned to JT and I'm like, this is our sign that we need to stay close to God to be happy. And he goes, yes, yes. Uh, Can we go to Disney World now? (laughs) That type of thing. (laughs) It was incredible. It actually reminds me, you mentioned to me before we started that Wayne Dyer, the late Wayne Dyer, wrote the Forward for Your book. And I have to tell you a quick story about signs. I mentioned to you that I interviewed his daughter, Serena, who's a friend of yours. I didn't know this, but before Serena had come on to the Zoom call like you're on with me now, she had done a prayer in the bathroom and said, Dad, if you're going to come through today, I'm being interviewed by an Australian girl and maybe just mention something about Olivia Newton-John or Jimmy Barnes, who were two big Australian singers. And like I said, I had no idea. And I'm doing a Zoom call like I've done hundreds of times in interviews before and nothing has ever happened. Out of nowhere, suddenly, Scarlett, Jimmy Barnes' music starts playing on the call, the loudest sound that you could ever, ever come across. And it's like the chorus of one of his most well-known songs. I said, oh, my God. She's like, what is that? I said, it's music. And, oh, my God, and I had to call... IT and la 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 and they turned it off and I said oh it's this Jimmy Barnes song she goes Jimmy Barnes I said yes Jimmy Barnes and then it went on to her telling me that she'd done this prayer before she came on to ask her dad if he was around to give her a sign about Olivia Newton-John or Jimmy Barnes I mean it's just unbelievable how this stuff happens and how they're always communicating with us and if we believe it then it's there for us to take in. I love that. I love it. Yeah, it was incredible. Nick Ortner, who is the president of the Tapping Solution, he lives in Newtown. So he was helping with the trauma recovery. And he actually came to my house to tap with me, which is a incredibly powerful form of trauma relief. And he noticed that I had a lot of Wayne Dyer books. And he said, hey, do you like Wayne Dyer? And I said, "I I I love him. And he said, well, I am speaking at a You Can Do It conference in New York City in two months. Two months was like Valentine's Day or something from the tragedy. And he said, would you like to go with me and meet Wayne? And I said, oh yeah, I would. Absolutely. And so that day when I went, we were one of the first people there and Wayne was doing a sound check on the stage And Nick came over and said, okay, Wayne would like to meet you. And so I remember walking up on stage and Wayne is up there with his hands out like this. I just walked right into his arms and he whispered in my ear, do you feel him? And I said, I feel him all around me all the time. And he said, well, I'd like for you to share your story on stage. You know, I'll talk for maybe 10 minutes and then I'll segue and bring you up. And I said, I'd love to do that. Wow. So we took pictures off my phone and he segued into me. I walked up on stage in front of 3000 people. And two months after the tragedy, I talked about the message, nurturing, healing love. And 
that is now that talk is the trailer that you can find online for the book, Nurturing Healing Love, which is pretty cool. That's amazing. After I finished the story, he said, if you will write a book, I will write the foreword to it. And that was incredible. To have a foreword written by Wayne Day, you can't get any better than that. (laughs) Right. I agree. (laughs) You are such a strong person, and I know it was just the 10-year anniversary of the Sandy Hook massacre. And I want to talk about this grief process, because I've spoken to a lot of people who have lost loved ones and or have worked around people that have died, and it's so different for so many people. And I wonder for you, how did you move through grief, and how do you still move through grief? That's a great question. One of the things that the town did really well was they assigned a trauma expert to each of the families. I think there was one trauma expert for several families, but this person is a first responder when trauma events happen. And so they go to places, they know how to work with families that have loss. And so she was with me the whole time, but she brought in a mom really early on within the first few days that had also lost a son to violence. So when you're a parent that has lost a child, you immediately have this feeling like that you can't survive. Yes. That how can you survive that kind of loss and that kind of crushing pain? And so I was literally sitting on my mom's couch and I was looking at my hand. I remember thinking like, I- I'm going to dissolve. I never wanted to kill myself, but I thought, I'm just going to dissolve. That's that's how, mm. I don't know, that's how crushing the pain was. Anyway, this woman comes in and she goes, I know exactly what you're feeling. I've lost my son to violence as well. And so I was riveted and I said, well, how did you get through it? I mean, what happens? And she started telling me her story and her aftermath of her story. And I held my hand up. To her face, I mean, not not rudely, but I said, stop right there. I said, that's, that's your story, but that's not going to be my story. Mm. Because she was talking about the pain and how it endures and how I'm going to have to get used to it. <laughs> you know, just, yeah. I don't want to live like this. And I can't live like this. This is what my mind was thinking. And so I just said, stop. And in that moment, I realized she did me a service because she made me realize that there is no roadmap to what I'd been through, that I couldn't follow in somebody else's footsteps because I did not want my future to look like hers. But what it made me realize was that I was going to have to decide what my future was going to look like, and it could look like whatever I wanted it to. Mm. And... You know, a little while. So I had this new awareness that, okay, there isn't anybody that's come before me. I I have to figure it out myself. And there were lots of choices that I had to make. There's a big gun control effort in America. And I had a lot of them reaching out to me saying, hey, we need your voice. Mm. We need you in D.C. The president needs you. It was President Obama then. And uh I I thought about Jesse's message and I saw the anger that some of the people in that movement were having and I understood it, but 
I had to figure out how do I want to live the rest of my life? Do I want to be fighting against something? Or do I want to be for something? Yes. And then seeing Jesse's message, I just realized this is my purpose. This is why I was put on earth. It is to be for nurturing, healing, love. Mm -hmm. This is the message that I'm supposed to be spreading. And so I, that was a choice though, how I was going to live the rest of my life. And I had JT and JT was 12 years old and I was modeling for him in the moment, how to move through difficulty, pain, suffering, grief, tragedy for the rest of his life. He was looking at me and it wasn't just the words that were coming out of my mouth. It was, it was every interaction that I was having. It was ever, every gesticulation. It was the energy that I was putting up. I was teaching him and I realized that very early on. And that realization helped me rise to the occasion. It, it literally helped me thoughtfully respond by being the best version I was capable of being of myself yes. at that time. And it doesn't mean that I wasn't sad. I, I was terribly sad and I cried a lot and I was angry, but I, I also... Jesse's message gave me that mm. direction and these incredible signs that I got from him that were just undeniable that he was with me. Yes. It comforted me. How did JT move through it and how is he now? JT had a very interesting story as well. He was very angry and you can understand why. And so for the first month or so, um, we were staying, we were staying at my mom's for the first week or two. And then we came back to our little farmhouse. And of course, that's hard being in this environment where Jesse had filled the house with his, with his energy and his, he was loud and he was bouncing off the walls. So like to come back there, just a diff completely different place. And JT was in his room and he was angry and didn't want to go to school. And I didn't want him to go. I didn't want him to go back to school. If to, In my mind, it wasn't safe. Mm. And so we were languishing. I didn't know what to do. I called his school and the guidance counselor there said, uh, you know, we're all traumatized. I don't know what you expect from me, but, you know, we're all traumatized. So there wasn't help there, but there was a woman, Dr. Lori Layden, who is one of those first responders that came with Nick Ortner to my house that tapped with me and she came uh, during one of the visits, the tapping visits. If tapping is emotional freedom technique and you tap on mm. these areas of your body that coordinate to your amygdala and it, you give it signals that it can calm down, wow. that you're safe. Yeah, I've heard about tapping before, but hearing you speak about it, it I always thought, oh, how much could that do? But, you know, I know that you got such relief from it. 
it does a lot because when when I say relief, it's not just from physical pain; yeah. it's from mental and emotional wow. pain too. Yeah, I felt relief from my extreme emotional yes. pain. It was yes. it was really incredible. So she came over to tap with JT, and she mentioned she Nick had flown her in from being with orphan genocide survivors in Rwanda. And he had been funding her to work with that community over there and tap with them, tap through their pain. And so she set up a Zoom with orphan genocide survivors from Rwanda. So so these were now young adults who had witnessed their parents being murdered in front of them, attempted murder on themselves. They had grown up in camps, Red Cross Mm. camps. Uh, They now live amongst the people that murdered (laughs) their families because because, you know, they couldn't send everybody to jail. It was, there was just yes. too many. And so they did reconciliation and forgiveness in Rwanda. And for those of you who have not heard of the Rwandan genocide that are listening, in 1994, mm-hmm. there was a genocide where over 1 million Tutsis were murdered by their neighboring Hutus within 90 days. Mm-hmm. It was horrific. And so, these were children. They were four and six years old when they lived through this. They were now late teens and they Skyped with JT and there was an interpreter in between them. They reached out to JT's in his bedroom. There's actually a hole in the wall behind him where he had punched a hole in his wall out of anger. And they said, JT, We heard about what happened to your little brother all the way over here in Rwanda. And we want you to know how sorry we are. But we also want you to know that you're going to be okay Mm. and you're going to feel joy again. And I remember standing behind him and I was riveted because no one with that amount of credibility had been able to provide us with comfort like that, yes. be, be able to say that with credibility. You know, people will say, oh, you're going to be okay. And it's just like, when you've lost a child, you just look yeah. at them and you're like, you have no idea. Yeah. You have no idea the pain. These people, they knew. Mm. They did know because they had lived through something that was worse, really, than than Sandy Hook. Not that you can compare no, some grief, you but- can't. But we were riveted. And they started telling JT about their story. One of them had been living in a grass hut and his neighbor tore down the hut with a machete, killed his parents, attempted murder on him. You know, they had the scars to prove it. Bottom line, they had both gone to a Red Cross camp and they said once their wounds started to heal, they started feeling this profound sense of gratitude for being safe, for having food, for having people around them that cared. And then they said that strengthened them to be able to consider forgiveness, forgiveness for for the people they call the killers, 
because they realized that if they didn't forgive, they might go down the same path of anger, hatred, revenge that the Hutus went down, This the very same path. And so they chose forgiveness. And they said forgiveness was such a huge part of their healing journey that they wanted to reach out and they wanted to share that with JT and I. And that made sense to me. Wow. It really did. And uh, I remember after that, we had journals, stacks of journals and JT came out with a journal and we sat in the living room and we're both kind of writing. And I said, what are you writing? And he said, I want to go back to school tomorrow and I want to start raising money for those kids. And I want to send them to college because they had said, you know, they, they would like to go to college, but they didn't have any way of doing that. So actually that's why JT went back to school to start he made these rubber bands that said newtownhelpsrwanda.org and he sat at games. He would come to my fundraisers for the, for the choose love movement. And he'd be sitting in the corner with a little fishbowl and he'd have a stack of bands and people would pay $2 for the bands. And he eventually got enough money to send two orphan genocide survivors to university. And he Skyped back with them. And there was a large group uh, there. And there was a large group uh, with, with JT. And I remember him making that announcement the woman that they had chosen on their side, her name was Betty and Betty just collapsed. And JT, he's 12 years old. He's looking at me and he's saying, is she okay? (laughs) And I said, JT, with a little bit of effort on your behalf, you've just fundamentally changed someone's life on the other side of the world. We surprised her. Maybe that wasn't fair because it's she has so many things she has to think about now that she can go to college and so it just it really kind of jump-started his healing process he found some power in having the ability to step outside of his own pain and heal himself and actually there's research behind that that that's that's how we heal When we help and heal other people, we help and heal ourselves. And so he continued. He continued to raise money. He built a self-sustaining fish pond for former children soldiers in Uganda. Mm. He built self-sustaining poultry operation for an organization called Children of Peace in Uganda, run by a beautiful woman named Jane. And it was really a big part of his healing was the service part. And it's a huge part of mine as well. I didn't live my life the way that I do now, 10 years ago in a day, but it's been such a gift to realize the importance of serving other people and to to realize how much that does help and heal yourself. What an absolute legend your son is. Proud of him. I want to talk a little bit about Adam Lanza, who was the one that came in and shot the children and some of the teachers at Sandy Hook. 
And I was doing some research on him before this interview and it's all shockingly disturbing. But from your knowledge, I mean, he was 20, he had gone to the school. Why does one end up so disturbed like that? I mean, I heard that he was anorexic at the time that he had committed the massacre. Somewhere it was written that he was sexually abused as a child. Do you know much information about him? I do. Yeah, yeah. And that's all accurate. He attended Sandy Hook Elementary School. And when he came in as a kindergartner with his mom, he was tested because he had special needs. He was on the spectrum. And he tested needing seven special services. Five were for social and emotional needs and sensory needs. And the other two were for academics. Now, the academic needs were... He couldn't touch paper. He had a problem doing that. And he had a speech impediment. So the school ended up providing him for the academic things that he needed, but not for the social, emotional needs that he had. And so he was just highly anxious as a child. He was often seen shaking and crying by himself in the cafeteria. He'd have to remove himself from the class. There's a little story that I learned when he was in first grade. And those were the the ages of the kids that he murdered. He and his mom made birthday invitations for his birthday. And he brought them to school in his backpack. And he passed them out to his classmates. And no one came to his birthday. There was this theme of isolation and neglect and rejection and loneliness throughout his life. He was different. When he was in fifth grade, this is also at Sandy Hook Elementary School, he wrote a story and it was handwritten. It had illustrations and it was called The Book of Granny. And he actually made copies and... He was bringing it to school and he he had an intention of selling it, but the teachers took it. But the book was about a witch that came to Sandy Hook Elementary School with a broomstick. Her broomstick opened into a semi-automatic weapon and she murdered children. And so that was, hindsight is 2020 for sure, but that was his way of asking for help. This is what's going on in my in my head. And he turned that in and no one ever did. No, there was never any follow-up with him. He literally struggled. And then the the sexual abuse supposedly came after that. Even from the very beginning, it was hard for me to put 100% of the blame on Adam Lanza. Yeah. And I saw everyone else doing that in just blind rage, Uh, and as well as his mom, who gave him access to the guns. That's what they did. They went shooting as a mother and son. That was like the one thing that they enjoyed doing together. And it's so interesting, but she was a single mom, and she was trying to deal with a special needs child herself, and she didn't have the skills and tools to do that. Interestingly enough, I went through a very similar trajectory. I've 
not completely, but I brought my son into Sandy Hook Elementary School and he was tested for special services and he needed some sensory special services and we were denied. And so I got him the help that he needed, but that whole process was not pleasant and it wasn't well done on the school side. It wasn't kind. It wasn't compassionate at all. So I had an idea of what Nancy Lanzo went through in her attempts to get her son the help that she needed. And it was just, it's just too easy when we blame someone else for something that happens. You know, that, that saying, it's like when I point at you, there are three fingers pointing back at me. Yes. It was just too easy because I, I thought, well, if it really was all their fault and yes, he's responsible. Yes. She made a huge mistake that she paid for with four shots to the face, by the way, before he left that morning, he killed her. But I thought, wow, it never would have happened before if it was all their fault. And then it would never happen again, ever, right? If it's all their fault. But wait a minute, <laughs> it did happen before and it has happened since. So, you know, blaming at some point, which is why, interestingly enough, my I think one of my first interviews after the tragedy, I remember it was on the phone in my mom's kitchen. My mom's standing next to me. I can't remember who was interviewing me, but I said, I take my part of the responsibility for what happened in my son's school and in my community. And then the interview went on and I hung up and my mom was like, let me tell you something. Never say that again. You are not responsible for what happened to your son at Sandy Hook. You dropped him off. It was where he was supposed to be by law. Never say that. And I said, you know what? By saying that, I'm able to be part of the solution. Mm -hmm. I said, no one else is taking responsibility. I don't see any hands waving in the air saying I could have done something differently. So maybe if I step forward and say that I take my part of the responsibility for what's going on to my community, maybe other people will join me. Mm -hmm. And And literally, I think it's the best thing that I ever did because in taking responsibility. I was able to take positive action. And, and we know that the opposite of anxiety is positive action. And every positive action step that I took after the tragedy strengthened me and healed me. And I think rather than being mired in anger, hatred, revenge and letting it take me down, I was not going to be another victim of Adam Lanza. That was a choice that I made. I was not going to give him control over my thoughts from the grave, by the way, because he killed himself, that then impacts how I feel, that would impact how I showed up in my relationship with my family, JT, my behavior. I was not going to be a victim. But that did require forgiveness and a lot of personal work. That's unbelievable. I remember Obama, who obviously served as America's president for a very long period of time, saying that the hardest part of his term was coming to the community after Sandy Hook and speaking to the parents that had lost their children and their loved ones. Mm -hmm. And I mean, 
for a president to be saying that the things that they go through and they see just shows the level of heart wrench and grief and injustice that that had happened that day. Absolutely. We met with him personally three days after the tragedy before he got on stage. And it was incredible to meet him. We were the last family. If you can imagine, there were 26 families and they're all very angry. They're all in shock. They're all mourning. And he's going around meeting everyone before he gets on stage to address the nation. We were the last one. And all the politicians had made their rounds before. And I remember I had a picture of Jesse queued up on my cell phone, but nobody ever asked to see a picture. No one even asked who anybody was. It was like, sorry for your loss. Sorry for your loss. Sorry for your loss. Sorry for your, you know what I mean? Mm. It was like, this automatic thing. So I had no expectation when President Obama came in. I thought it was going to be more of the same. But he walked in and he said, who is the mother? And I raised my hand and he walked directly over to me. He gave me a warm hug and he said, can I see a picture of your son? So I pulled up a picture of Jesse and he's, we're standing like shoulder to shoulder President Obama, he said, can I see that picture closer? So he took my phone and he was really examining Jesse's picture. And he said, I can tell from this picture that your son was an incredible person and very brave. And I said, yes, he was very brave. I said, he actually saved nine of his classmates' lives before losing his own. I could not believe the power of his presence and his looking at Jesse's picture and and knowing that he was brave. He was spot on. He was a hero. And so he stayed with our family. He took pictures and then he left and he addressed the nation. It was really incredible. Can you tell us exactly what he did? Because it just shows what an unbelievable child he is. It was really incredible. So Adam Lanza shot his way through the glass doors of the elementary school, and then he made a left down the first grade hallway, the hallway where all the first grades were. And of course, he knew this because he had attended Sandy Hook Elementary School. And when he made the left, the principal and guidance counselor had been meeting with another parent in a room on the right side of the hallway. And so that door opened and Adam shot them dead, both of them. And then he turned left into Jesse's classroom, which is right across the hallway from that meeting room. And the first classroom, all the kids were scattered. Unfortunately, the loudspeaker was on throughout the whole school. So Mm. everything that was happening, everyone heard. And so there was chaos and fear, obviously. And so he continued to shoot and most likely killed Jesse's teacher, who was standing very close to him, right behind him, when his gun either jammed or ran out of bullets. And during the short delay, 
that it took for him to just a clip, take the clip out, turn it around and put it back in to continue his killing spree. Jesse called for his classmates to run. And nine of them were able to run out of the classroom before Adam reloaded and killed the rest of the people, the rest of the children in the classroom. And then he made his way to the second classroom and killed everyone in that classroom except for one student. Now they had time, they were hiding in a bathroom. Mm. And so he killed them all except for one student that was standing in the corner. And then by that time, the police had driven up to the front of the school. He heard the sirens and he went back into Jesse's classroom so that he could get a better line of sight as to what was going on in the front of the school. And then he killed himself. Jesus. Don't you, I mean, you just brought up Jesse so well that he was so courageous to do that. I mean, as sad as it is, you must be so proud that he saved those lives. I'm incredibly proud of both of my boys. They are the most amazing people that I know inside and out. And I have to tell you that that example of courage, as well as JT's, has been a, a huge guiding light for me. I, I tell myself, wow, if, you know, if my sons, if, if Jesse, could stand up to a shooter and save nine of his classmates' lives. Wow, I can get up in front of an audience and I can share his message of yes. nurturing, healing, love. That's that's easy in comparison with what he did. You spoke about Alex Jones, who is a terrible, terrible human to have even put the idea that this Sandy Hook massacre did not happen and then at the funeral there were actors I just cannot fathom this, Scarlett. It makes no sense. And then I read something, and correct me if I'm wrong, that 18%, was it, of Americans think that the massacre was a conspiracy theory and that it didn't happen. One in five. One, I mean, well, what is the world that we're living in? It just. I'll explain it to you. Yeah, please, I'll explain please why. do, because I... <laughs> It just sickens me because as a Jewish person, I know that these are Holocaust deniers as well. How could you think that this did not happen? It just, yes, please explain. You know what's interesting? The people that initially believed that and were following Alex Jones were young moms, which shocked me. And the reason was that they did not want to think that something that horrific could happen in an elementary school. They, they didn't want to believe the truth. And so when given an alternative, like you either believe that that can happen and that that did, or you can believe that, that there were no kids that died, that they were just actors hired by the government to take away your guns. So in other words, you're given mm. a bad guy and a focus for your anger, right? 
that's a that's a better story or a more digestible story than to think that actually we could raise and cultivate a young man that would come in and commit a mass murder in his own hometown in his own elementary school which would you rather believe frankly right which would you rather be true yes and so it was easier to believe from these young moms which were the initial people that were following Alex Jones that that never happened. And so then his following just grew as he continued to question the facts. And I saw a bit of the footage where you recently testified because he was he went to court about this. And mm-hmm. correct me again if I'm wrong, but he had to pay a substantial amount of money because they saw all these text messages. He knew that he was making up this lie. And... Well, he is in bankruptcy right now. So yes, we did get uh, judgments, but nothing has been paid. Was it a podcast that he had or was it a radio show? How was he giving out these messages of these conspiracy theories? Well, he had been on social media and YouTube and all of those places shut him down. So he has his own online show and his own network, basically, that he operates from. And so people would follow him there. Did the court not shut that down? No, they did not. I I can't believe that because then I saw he has had Kanye West on to say all these horrid things. What is going on here? Why is he still allowed to? It dumbfounds me that this is allowed to happen. And then at the time, didn't you get death threats? So you're mourning the loss of your son and then you're getting death threats from people who are conspiracy theorists basically saying you've made this whole thing up. Correct. I mean, how did you move past that? That was very difficult. That was hard and fear kind of stops your healing process for somebody to be so far out of reality to not be able to accept reality. That in itself is kind of scary. Well, eventually we had to take Alex Jones to court to get him to stop. Wow. And to punish and yes. to send a message. Truth is important. And if you lie about someone with the intent to harm, then you will be punished. And I am happy with the judgment that we got. We did not do it for the money. We did it for the message that we sent out there that truth is important. We have to be reporting truth in our news because otherwise... We don't have a civil society if we can't agree on truth. And it is really important, especially now. Yes. I wonder, Scarlett, what is the best advice that you have ever been given? It's really about forgiveness, the power of forgiveness, and a lesson on how to do that. It's so important having healthy relationships. Healthy relationships are the key to happiness. Mm -hmm. Harvard universities, they just published a book about their grant study. And the grant study was the longest running study of human life ever done. And they found the secret to happiness. It's gone on for 85 years. The secret to happiness they found are healthy connections and meaningful relationships. Mm -hmm. And the way that you get those is through forgiveness. 
so important. In fact, so important that I spend my time going around talking about it and teaching it. And we actually have a a program that we offer on our website. It's free. It's spreading this message, literally nurturing, healing, love, and healing means forgiveness. So it's a powerful formula that can help you thoughtfully respond in any situation, circumstance, or interaction by choosing love. Because in the end, it is a choice. That's that's our power as human beings. We have the ability to get in between what's happening and our thoughtful response, and we can choose love. And so that's the whole point to the Choose Love movement is providing essential life skills that enable us to have healthy relationships, to manage our emotions, to make responsible decisions, and ultimately to have the courage to face the difficulty and pain that comes up in life. It's part of being human and learn how to grow through it and even be strengthened by it. It's called post-traumatic growth. And there's really not a program like it out there. And, you know, I knew that this program would have saved my son's life. If Adam Lanza had learned these skills and tools, if he had been able to manage his pain, the tragedy would never have happened. So I decided to create a program and offer it for free for all ages so that people can learn. Kids can learn in schools, parents can learn in homes, communities can help practice these essential life skills that are a direct path to flourishing. Do you have a favorite prayer or saying? I have two. One comes from Anne Lamont, you know, the author. And she says the most famous prayer is, please, please, please. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) And I find myself saying that a lot. And then the Lord's Prayer too. Mm. I love the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I love that prayer as well. And say it a lot. Yes. That was Olivia Newton-John's favorite prayer as well. She told me she said it every night before she went to bed. Oh, wow. It was a beautiful story when I interviewed her. She said that when she was pregnant with Chloe, her daughter, she thought she was going to have a miscarriage. And she said to God, if you allow Chloe to survive, then I will say the Lord's Prayer before I go to bed every single night. And she said to me, I've said it every single night since. Mm, I love that. So I beautiful. love that. What is your most mystical experience? I did broach this before, right after I had Jesse. I remember having him in my arms and I remember saying a prayer. And I said, Dear Jesus, thank you so much for this incredible gift. I know that you can take him from me at any time, but please don't. And, and I never said that prayer with JT. It wasn't like, I was like, whoa, where did that come from? What am I? It was just a prayer that I said. And by the way, I said it, I said it almost every night. Mm. And I would say a prayer with both my boys. We had two rooms, JT slept in one room and then we had a door and then Jesse always slept with me for his six years of life. And so I would, I would get into bed with him and I'd snuggle up to him and I would just, I would say the prayer, dear Jesus, I know that he is such a gift, 
please don't take him from me. And I, I never thought about it. Like, why am I saying that prayer? Right. But then when I saw the nurturing, healing love, and I started thinking about this and I realized he had a spiritual awareness that he wasn't going to be around for very much longer. I realized I did too. Mm-hmm. I did too. My spirit knew. And so my consciousness didn't know, but my spirit knew. Mm. And all I did for six years was just be as present as possible and just love on him as much as I could. I, I mean, even to the last day when he wrote on the side of my car, I love you. I knew that that was a moment. I ran in got my phone, took a picture of that, it would have been gone in 15 minutes. You know, it was just a different way of living life. I also realized, I would say a prayer and I would say, dear God, use the boys and I as instruments of your peace. Mm. That was a prayer that I said a lot too, right? Then I started the Choose Love movement and started spreading a message of nurturing, healing love. And very early on, I started that whole movement in January of 2013. I mean, I started it almost right away. But very shortly after, I remember having kind of this bolt of lightning slash awareness come through me. Oh my God, he he answered my prayer. He is using us mm. as service. And I was almost afraid to even pray after <laughs> yes. that. Because it was like, oh God, I didn't mean like this. I meant on a Saturday when it was convenient for me for maybe an hour. I didn't mean, you know, like the to lay down our lives and spend the rest of my life in service. Yes. But, you know, even saying that, it's the greatest gift I've ever gotten. Not Jesse's murder, but being able to live my life in service. Yeah. Now it's 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 incredibly healing and the people that I meet and the love that I get is just it's all healing. It's it's mm-hmm. amazing. I will also say that I look back on my life before Jesse's murder and I went through traumas and difficulties before that and I realize that all of those things that I went through were strengthening me. I was learning things. They were guiding me up to the point where when Jesse was murdered, that I did have what I needed to be able to thoughtfully respond in the way that I did, to actually be present and be aware of these messages and to understand the enormity of the message and meaning in them. And they say that God gives you everything that you need, that Mm. he never gives you more than you can handle. And I have to say in my case that that was true, that he didn't give me more than I could handle, that he had brought me to a place where I had some skills and tools and knowledge that that helped me thoughtfully respond and start the Choose Love movement. And I believe that he's helped me along the way since as well, for sure. Wow, that's incredible. What is a life of greatness to you? Mm, That's a great question. I believe that a life of greatness is being able to be present in the moment, in life, 
being able to thoughtfully respond with love, having those skills and tools, and having the courage to also step outside of whatever's going on in your life and even your own pain to help other people. Mm. I believe a life of greatness is a life that's lived in service to one another. That's how we survive and it's how we thrive. Interestingly enough, you think about Charles Darwin, the famous evolutionist, and this term that's always assigned to him is survival of the fittest. But in reality, what he really concluded in his research in Man's Search for Meaning is survival of the most compassionate. Actually, he said sympathetic, and by sympathetic, he meant altruistic, generous, and compassionate. So it's survival of the most compassionate. So we are literally here to help one another. And when we do that, we help and heal ourselves. But that's how society survives and thrives through compassion. And so I believe that living your life in that way is living a life of greatness. That's beautiful. Scarlett Lewis, thank you for all the unbelievable work you have done and and you are doing. Honestly, what you've gone through and what you've turned it around to be able to help others is just incredible. And you are an absolute blessing on this world. So thank you for the conversation today. Oh, thank you, Sarah. And thank you for this. This is also a blessing and this is putting out such a fantastic message. So thank you for what you do as well. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind the scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.